you know, a lot of guys, when they're caught and brought to court, they don't seem so tough. They don't seem so menacing. But I have to say, and I saw, I've seen a lot of them over the years, he was a scary guy. He had these piercing blue eyes. It was like he would watch us go up to the judge sometimes. It felt like it was like a lion stalking his prey. There's just an aura about him of evil and viciousness. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. It's the cardinal sin of gangland, with no forgiveness for those caught breaking the sacred code of Omerta. Yet information from criminals keeps the wheels of justice turning and a vital relationship exists between law enforcement handlers and their snitches. Mostly rules and procedures govern these difficult dealings as the secrets of the underworld are handed up in the shadows. But what happens when the system breaks and when rogue cops and violent gangsters step outside the norms? This week, I'm talking to former Boston State Prosecutor Brian Kelly, who is the lead counsel against evil gangland figure James Whitey Bulger, found guilty of a catalogue of murder, torture and extortion, all the while operating as an FBI informant. He tells me how a corrupted system protected Bulger again and again as he committed the worst crimes imaginable. And he believes that Whitey's legacy is a reminder for law enforcement across the world today how not to allow criminal touts get the upper hand. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. I think Whitey Bulger, we've so much that we can learn from his life, his life of crime, his, his murder at the age of 89, but most importantly, the way he was handled as an informer and how his ability to corrupt people allowed him continue in a, a horrendous life of crime and basically live as a free man for so long. You came face to face with him, obviously, during his trial. And um, you, you've told me, but maybe you can tell me again, what sort of a guy was he? Well, sure. Um, he, he was uh, reputed to be, and he was a vicious, vicious guy. And he was... Uh, the leader of the Irish uh, mafia here in Boston for many, many years. And as you say, but you know, he, the reason he prospered for so long in the, in the underworld was because of public corruption. He had corrupted various members of law enforcement, including the FBI agents who were supposed to be making sure things like this didn't happen. He grew up in a part of Boston called South Boston, which is primarily uh, Irish section of Boston. And uh, he, he joined a gang uh, growing up, and eventually he took it over. And in, in between those times, he spent time in the American prison system, including the famous uh, prison Alcatraz. And uh, he uh, uh, earned his reputation as being a vicious guy. A lot of the guys in organized crime back here, uh, you know, it's the, the traditional mafia is, is Italian-based. But here in Boston, it was unique in that there was a 
basically co-equal branch of organized crime and in some ways more feared uh, because they were uh, more ruthless. Bulger and his closest colleagues, uh, they were actually, they they did the crimes hands-on. A lot of the mafia guys, as they rose up the ranks, liked to have buffers. So in case they were investigated or prosecuted, the underlings would be uh, charged with the crimes rather than the top guys. It's hard to pin a murder on a guy if he's sitting in a restaurant 10 miles away. Whereas Bulger and, and a couple of his select crew members, they would almost compete to be the ones to kill uh, their enemies. And they say, no, it'll be my turn. And so they were a ruthless bunch. And even the Italian mafia in Boston was afraid of them. So he was born in 1929. And uh, the mother was first generation Irish-American immigrant. The father was Canadian, wasn't he? And the other two brothers um, in the family stuck in school and never kind of, you know, they seem to have been very successful. Um, what, what, what was it about about James that was different? Did he, did he just, he was drawn into the gangs? He was drawn into that street life? Did he find it exciting? Or was there anything about him that just made him different and stand out from the rest of the family? Well, look, it's hard to psychoanalyze people years later. I mean, every, everyone's families have different, <laughs> different personalities within them, and it's not uncommon uh, unfortunately, back here, you know, sometimes uh, one brother becomes a cop or one, one brother goes the other way. And in the Bulger family, his, his brother Billy became the most powerful politician in Massachusetts. He rose to the, the head of the Massachusetts Senate, and then he became uh, the president of University of Massachusetts. So it was a, certainly an odd pairing, but it was a power, a power couple in many ways because people knew he had both political contacts and uh, underworld context, that is, Whitey did. And the third brother, uh, Jackie, he became a uh, quasi-judge type, a clerk magistrate, not really an official judge, but, you know, the clerk magistrates handle a lot of the preliminary things in the court system, and it's an appointed position, so obviously he was well-connected. He became a clerk magistrate, but he also became a convicted felon because he was prosecuted uh, for lying to a grand jury about where Whitey's assets were, when uh, when Whitey went on the uh, on the on the run, so he started out, I think, as an enforcer in an Irish mob, as you say, there in South Boston, the Win- the Winter Hill Gang, um, and he went on then to to lead it. Did he, as would be the norm, did he remove the 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 head of that gang in order to take control? Yes, you know that, that's that is the norm. You know, eventually, there's, there's Different factions of that group split apart, and he emerged as the leader of uh, the so-called Winter Hill Gang, which uh, a lot of people thought it was originally named after another uh, Irish mobster named Howie Winter, but it wasn't. It was named after a section of Somerville, Massachusetts, the Winter Hill section. And for whatever reason, they, they kept that name, even though they were in South Boston. So people would refer to it as Winter Hill or the Hill, and 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 Bulger was the was the at the end of the day, he was the leader of it. And by the 1980s, he was totally in charge, making a fortune off all sorts of various uh, criminal uh, adventures. Yeah, so they were involved in, in the usual and for those times would have been slightly different was he would have been he would have been there throughout the 60s and 70s when it would have been more extortion and gambling rackets and things like that. And did they move into drugs early, the Winter Hill Gang? One of their biggest money makers was always extortion, and it didn't really matter who was being the victim was. 
Originally, they made a lot of money off the bookmakers who were involved in gambling. And a lot of the bookmakers were really nonviolent guys who happened to have uh, a lot of skill with money and odds and sports. And they they were easy prey. They couldn't run to the police and say, hey, we got an illegal gambling business and these thugs are shaking us down, taking our money. They had no recourse. So they had to pay what's called rent or tribute to Bulger and his gang. And so that was one source of steady income for years. And then there would be uh, uh, the drug dealers. The drug dealers, again, were in the same predicament. They couldn't run to the local police and say, hey, I'm selling cocaine or marijuana in South Boston, and these, these, these guys are shaking me down. So uh, when Bulger and his crew would confront them, sometimes with guns to the head, particularly if they balked at their payment plan, uh, they would always capitulate because everybody knew it's better to pay than to die. And so while uh, Bulger himself was not standing on the street corner in Southie selling drugs, he was allowing it to happen. And he was allowing it to happen because they were making a fortune. I mean, you're talking boatloads of marijuana, boatloads of coke, uh, whatever it was, they made a fortune in the 80s. And um, then they would do basically crimes of opportunities. So there was one instance, which actually was part of the trial years later, where uh, one guy had the misfortune of moving next to one of Bulger's cronies and a property dispute erupted about where's the property line. So they summoned the guy to Bulger's um, house in South Boston and basically put a gun to his head and extorted him saying he was, you know, uh, you know, causing problems for their, their gang member and, you know, forced him to pay a hundred grand or something outrageous. So, they would, they would use excuses to create problems for people and then say, well, you can get out of it if you pay us 50 grand or 100 grand. And so whether it was uh, bookmakers they were extorting or drug dealers or uh, just business contractors, uh, that's, that's the way they made a lot of their money. Now, Bulger would have um, portrayed himself as being a classic mafiosa in that there were rules that you didn't, you didn't, um, you know, you didn't cross him. And particularly, he would have warned everybody that you didn't rash the famous term in, in gangland, that you certainly didn't tout to the police. And that would have been one of his golden rules and something that he he portrayed very strongly on the streets, I think. Well, yeah, I mean, part of the, the, the I think a trial, we called it the grotesque irony of his uh, success was that he had informants killed. When in fact, he was one. And he was one for many years, and uh, he used the FBI just the way they used him. He he would uh, help uh, give information on his competitors, and they would help put his competitors out of business. And, you know, he was the biggest informant of them all, him and his sidekick, Steve Fleming. Did people suspect that, you know, over the years? Did they, they usually will accuse one another of that, but did they actually suspect that? Nobody suspected it because it was too ridiculous. He was a homicidal maniac running the organized crime uh, in Boston. And to think that he was an informant was preposterous. Uh, In fact, it wasn't until I think the late 80s where the Boston Globe uh, ran a story suggesting he was one because one of the reporters had seen an informant file of the FBI and it was roundly uh, poo-pooed that this is ridiculous. There's no way this is accurate. This is just a smear campaign uh, on Bulger. And certainly no one ever said it to his face and walked away to tell the tale. Uh, So it really wasn't until uh, years later when we made the case. We didn't start working on the case until the early 90s. 
the federal case. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, uh, when he was charged by way of indictment, he was tipped off and he fled in 95. So uh, then he was on the run for uh, until, Jesus, blurring together now, to the summer of 2011, I believe. And he was captured in California. But all that time from 95 to 2011, he was going here, there, and everywhere. uh, And... You know, he lived a long time on the run. So John Connolly is an interesting character. He's an FBI agent who grew up with him in South Boston. And was he the guy who signed him up as an informant? Was he the one who brought him in in the first place? No, I don't believe so. I, I, there was there's um, others who made made the initial contact, I believe, but Connolly was the one who really brought him into the fold because Connolly was himself uh, from South Boston, and so Connolly really became the main handler, so to speak, of Bulger. And uh, there was a sort of a neighborhood bond there, which somebody from the suburbs or some other part of Boston, or even some ethnic group, wouldn't have been able to um, accomplish with Bulger. And I suppose informing is supposed to be a two-way street, isn't it? The the um, law enforcement, um, you know, have to, they, they look, intelligence gathering and getting information is the key to solving crimes in one way, but in another way, you have to delve into that underworld and, and actually sort of swim with the sharks in order to get the, the information. So it's a fact of life informing and it goes on everywhere. Well, that's right. I mean, there's nothing wrong inherently with law enforcement using informants. Like if they need to do a search warrant at a house, somebody's got to tell them, well, the guy's selling drugs there. But the problem here is instead of getting information from the low-level figures to take down the big bosses, they eventually were in bed with the big boss. And now they're getting information from him and, and he was running amok for decades and people were dying because of it. And because of the information they gave him, he killed people. A classic example is, is John McIntyre, who was, you know, he was uh, a guy who uh, fairly idealistic and thought he was going to help the uh, Irish cause by shipping some guns off to Ireland and uh, he went aboard this ship that brought all these weapons uh, to Ireland. Many of the guns were Bulger's guns. This was the Valhalla. Yes. And, and the guns were seized off, off, off offshore of Ireland because of a tip the Irish authorities got from an Irish informant. It had nothing to do with McIntyre. But when the ship came back to Boston, uh, you know, they were furious that this had happened. And there was an effort made to determine who was the snitch. And... So, uh, unfortunately, McIntyre, when he got back to town, went out drinking, uh, got, you know, arrested for a drunk driving or something. And he tells this wild story to a local cop in Quincy, Mass., which is just south of Boston. The local cop was a very straight arrow, straight shooter, heard this story. And as soon as he started, McIntyre's talking about guns to Ireland and some of the guns were bulges, you know, uh, the, the local cop reported it to the Boston FBI as he should. Unfortunately, the information got to Connolly and the rest of them, and Bulger was tipped off. So they summoned uh, McIntyre to a house in South Boston uh, where they basically tied him up, elicited all this information they could out of him, brought him down to the basement and, and, sh- and strangled him. So uh, as this, the strangulation wasn't working, and Bulger asked him, you know, do you want one in the head? And the guy said, yes, please. And they shot him in the head. And then he was buried buried in the dirt basement. So, you know, John McIntyre was murdered by Bulger 
thanks in part to information he got from law enforcement. So it has a, you know, this whole corrupt informant business has a serious uh, cost to it when it's not handled properly. So that's why all these protocols are supposed to be in place where two agents are involved. You're supposed to have oversight, but, you know, people get lax and bureaucracies, institutions get lax. And sometimes the institutions are more concerned about their own reputation than they are an individual uh, justice. So the FBI became more concerned about having bad press that their informants have run amok. You've seen it in other institutions, uh, of course, but the FBI is, is, is a part of it. Did it start as something that would have been of value to the FBI? Did it go wrong somewhere? Was it because, obviously, because he was the leader, as you say, and not an underling, but was, was Bulger himself clever and manipulative? And did he, in some way, particularly work the system, you know? Well, listen, the, the reason it was so deadly was because his sidekick, this guy, Steve Flemmy, uh, he was a homicidal maniac too. And the, between the two of them, they're probably the two most feared killers. And the third guy they had on their so-called team was a guy named John Moderano, who had killed, you know, uh, over a dozen people uh, during the, you know, 60s gang wars. And he was a fugitive. Uh, but anyway, Flemmy was a, was an FBI informant as well. And Flemmy, in many ways, had more valuable information than Bulger, but Bulger profited from the, from the partnership because they were kind of seen as a duo within the FBI, Bulger and Flemmy. You know, they were the two, what they call top echelon informants. And Flemmy had access to locations in the north end of Boston, the Italian areas, where he could give the FBI information uh, for wiretaps and that sort of thing. And so between the two of them, they had access to the best criminal information in the city. So they were of value uh, to the FBI. The problem is uh, they weren't handled properly. And eventually they should have been shut down and prosecuted themselves. I mean, most definitely when we do come to trial and, and you're the, the state prosecutor that takes the case against Bulger, those 19 murders that were he was he was charged with, did they happen during those years that he was informing all of them? Yeah, Absolutely. There was a case made in the late 70s where the federal authorities, it was a basically a, a, a race fixing scheme. Uh, and they brought federal charges in late 70s. And Bulger and Flemmy should have been indicted, but they were taken out of the indictment uh, at the urging of the FBI and with the complicity of, of the uh, federal authorities. And Perhaps it was well-meaning at the time. They didn't understand the full breadth of the guy's criminality. But if he had been prosecuted then in the late 70s, there's several murders that wouldn't have happened in the 80s uh, that would have been prevented. So by foregoing the chance to prosecute him when they had a case, they, they really allowed more mayhem and more drug dealing and more extortions and all the rest of it to occur throughout the 80s. So he could have been taken off the street uh, like the others in the late 70s. And shockingly, as you have mentioned, when he vanished in 1994, he was tipped off that he was about to be brought before the courts again and did a runner. Um, now, I do remember the years and all the various sightings of them, even here in Ireland. We would have often had calls into the into the paper that there had been sightings of, of Bulger in France, I think in the south of France at one stage, and he was supposed to have been seen all over the world. He was on the run with a woman by the name of Catherine Grigg. She was his girlfriend and she had previously been married to a mobster uh, but was 
a kind of a, you know, an ordinary individual with an ordinary job and a seemingly ordinary life. And yet she fell head over heels with this really violent, murderous man and went into hiding with him for 16 years. I mean, it's that's extraordinary in itself. Yeah, there's no accounting for taste, I guess. <laughs> that is true. That is true. She turned out to be the toughest one of them all, of all the gangsters. She refused to cooperate, would never tell us, the authorities, anything. So she ended up doing, I think, seven or eight years in prison herself for, uh, you know, aiding and abetting a fugitive, which was, was Bulger. And, uh, you know, despite many efforts, she never cooperated. And all the while, all these sightings were all over the world and he was being seen everywhere from Mexico to Ireland, I'm sure, at, at some point. Um, they were actually living in Santa Monica under the noses, really, of of everybody. Um, I think, is there a suggestion that it was known where he was living and that corruption continued and it was a blind eye was turned to that? Well, I mean... Look, he was living five blocks away from the Los Angeles FBI office, which is not a good fact for the FBI. But uh, uh, even even I, as uh, much of the corruption that I saw and that led to his success and his failure to president, I don't believe there was any plot to hide him uh, uh, in L.A. I think it's very difficult in a, in a nation of over 300 million people uh, to know exactly where everybody is. And he's he's somebody who's fairly you know, nondescript looking. Uh, you could go to the the Red Sox, the baseball team, the Fenway Park, and you see 50 guys who look like him. And, you know, if he's with uh, a woman who's 20 years younger, he looks like a typical snowbird who's hiding out from the Northeast or the Midwest. And he didn't do much, right? So he's, you know, he, he kept to himself. He basically befriended some homeless bums and took their ID. So he had pretty good ID um, and could... Efforts have been made early on when he was a fugitive uh, that would have been better to help capture him. Sure, sure. But I don't think there was any uh, actual knowledge of where he was uh, and the FBI made an attempt to hide him. I I don't think that at all. By the end of the search, all the guys looking for him had no ties to the old group in Boston and no loyalty to the old FBI agents who had been co-opted. They were sick of the... uh, stain that this had created on their reputation of their of their law enforcement agency. So I do believe they wanted to catch him at the end. And, you know, inadvertently they did. Yeah. And they put up a two million dollar reward for his capture. And they did over the years um, do publicity pushes to try and find him and all the rest of it. I think in 2011, just prior to his arrest, they decided to concentrate on um, alerting the public to her, to Catherine Greg, who had a habit of uh, having her teeth whitened once a month, which is really quite frequent, to say the least. And they put out appeals to people about her and uh, eventually they were spotted and, and and arrested. Well, in many ways, it's all because of a cat. I don't really like cats, but um, his downfall, you can trace to a cat. So I'll give credit to that cat. And, and what I mean by that is, uh, so on one of the many shows that they were... Uh, uh, broadcasting, uh, I, uh, I forget the name of it now, it, it, America's Most Wanted, I believe, it, uh, it was on. And there was a woman sitting sitting at home in Iceland who was the former uh, beauty queen, uh, Miss Iceland, who had spent her winters in uh, Southern California. And when she was in Southern California, she had uh, befriended her neighbor over this cat. And the neighbor, the neighbor was Catherine Gregg. And 
Greg had this uh, very abrasive and scary boyfriend. And the the woman in Iceland was, you know, put off by him. But Kathleen Greig basically gave some story that he's got dementia or something, stay away from him, which in fact was kind of true. <laughs> but um, anyway, so she's sitting at home in Iceland. She sees this show on TV and she says, oh my God, that's Charlie and Carrie. So she picks up the phone and gets an agent who uh, actually does his job. He takes the call and uh, he files up on it. And they eventually figure out that Bulger is in this Santa Monica apartment. And uh, as I understand it, you know, when they went to the uh, that particular apartment place, the manager of the place happened to be from Boston. And when they told him who was hiding there, he's like, I'm not helping you. Uh, until until they kind of uh, let them know about the award rewards and stuff, and <laughs> so that helped smooth it over. And eventually, what they did was they they called his the apartment and summoned them to the basement, falsely claiming there'd been a um, burglary of their stuff in the uh, garage, so that they wouldn't have to go into the apartment because they were concerned properly that he might have weapons in there and come out firing. And of course, when they eventually searched the apartment it did have weapons and over 800 grand in cash in the apartment so anyway that's a long way of saying uh but for that cat he might never have been found (laughs) but for that cat there's um so by 2013 you were ready for trial i mean this must have been a very seminal moment in your career brian Sure. I mean, it was it was a major trial back here, to say the least. Uh, he was captured in the summer of 2011. And, you know, with all the pretrial maneuverings and, and filings, et cetera, we didn't get this case, the case to trial until the summer of 2013. And it went on for a couple months. It was, you know, filled with high drama. There was so many uh, crimes we had to prove up. And here is a federal law called uh, RICO. That's the acronym for it. And uh, you can prove it up by uh, multiple uh, ways, including murders, extortions, uh, drug dealing. And so we, you know, we had a lot to choose from with this guy, <laughs> but, you know, you have to have witnesses. So in some of the murders were very old and, uh, it, but it took a while to pr- present the case. And uh, whether it was murder, whether it was drugs, whether it was extortion, we had a, a real wide variety of characters testifying, including some of his closest allies, uh, Steve Fleming and Kevin Weeks in particular. And we should say, by the way, for anyone who who has missed the addition ed- of the years, he was 81 at this stage when he was in the dock, an old man. Um, what was his demeanour? Was he still menacing? You know, a lot of guys, when they're caught and brought to court, they don't seem so tough. They don't seem so menacing. But I have to say, and I saw, I've seen a lot of them over the years, he was a scary guy. He, he with his his eye, he had these piercing blue eyes, and he, you know, he, there's just an aura about him of evil and viciousness. And even in a courtroom, you could see there's 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 this guy uh, is not to be trifled with. I was glad to have the marshals nearby. Mm. I mean, you'd be well used to coming face to face with with criminals. Did you? Um, did he intimidate you? No, not really, because you're in a courtroom, and you know, it's a federal courtroom. No one has weapons. There's marshals around, you know, even if he were to <laughs> come at you, he's only going to get in like one punch or something. So it's not like uh, he can shoot you or strangle you. Um, but 
you know, he, he was a scary guy. He may have intimidated some of the jurors. I don't know. But he'd be just sitting there glowering and uh, looking at the jurors uh, when we were picking them. It was like he would watch us go up to the to the uh, judge sometimes. It felt like it was like a lion stalking his prey. You know, he, he, he was a scary, he was a scary guy. And he was kind of nearly willing to admit some of the murders and maybe some of the uh, the crimes he'd committed, but he was adamant of two things. One, that he hadn't ever laid a finger on a woman. And secondly, that he was not an informer. Now, you pushed that and pushed it because I think that's something, I gather that to you, that was probably one of the most important parts of this case to expose that, the wrongdoing and the corruption that had gone on. Well, well, right. It was it was unusual in that you know, he wasn't fighting as hard on some of the murders and drug dealings as 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 those issues because number one, we had strong evidence. We had witnesses who were there who were testifying. So he almost viewed it as a macho thing that yeah, I'm a I'm a gangster and yeah, I shot people. But he did not want, as you say, two things to be established: a that he was an informant because that's against everything you know the gangsters supposedly believed in, and uh, that he murdered women because it was just would be seen as so contemptible and unmanly and disgusting that he didn't want that reputation. So we were we made sure we we proved both because, as I said, his informist status uh, enabled him to prosper for so long. I mean, so many of these guys, you know, they have two or three good years and then they get arrested and they go off to prison. This guy was running amok for decades, and so while him being an informant was not a crime, nor was it an element of the crime, we weren't going to allow that to be ignored or or, or, or uh, denied uh, with no basis. So in some ways, it was kind of a red herring. It has nothing to do with the crime of federal racketeering or extortion, but it helped tell the story to the jury and helps the jury understand how could this guy you know, do this for so many years and nobody did anything. It's because if the state authorities try to get him, the feds would tip him off. And the, you know, like it or not, the FBI was the premier law enforcement agency in town. So if the state police tried something or the DEA, they would tip Bulger off. So that's how um, he prospered. And that's what we wanted to convey. And, you know, we had evidence that he did kill those two women. And we wanted to make sure uh, we, uh, we presented it. But it, it was more than a bit odd that in some ways... He didn't even challenge some of our proof. We had a witness testify right right before, uh, I forget which holiday, July 4th. Uh, he was Billy Shea, and he was a longtime peer of Bulger, and he ran Bulger's uh, cocaine operation and made Bulger a fortune. And they were friends, legitimate friends. And But no one had seen Shea for two decades until we brought him into the courtroom. And he, he was kind of an affable, amusing guy, and he walked by Bulger, Gave him a little head shake and said, hi, Jim. And Bulger kind of gave him a grin saying, hey, Billy. And it was like they were back in uh, Southie. Uh, and then Bul- Shea got on the witness stand and described all these things. It was all about, you know, the drug oper- operation that Shea ran and how he cut it up and how he sold it and how they profit, how we would hang out with Bulger and explain it to him. And so it buried Bulger on the drug part of our case. But I expected you know, a vicious cross-examination because Shea himself had been a serious gangster over the years and he had committed all sorts of crimes himself. So I figured, as usual, the defense would beat up on him and try to destroy his credibility. Instead, there was a zero cross-examination. 
And I don't think that was the lawyer's choice. I think that was Bulger's choice because I, I saw him talking. I, you can see him talking to the lawyer. He said, no questions. And as soon as he said that, it was like, okay, well, we just proved the drug part of the case. And, and then, you know, then they would segue back into carrying on about how he wasn't an informant, which was all bullshit. He was obviously an informant. They had informant files, you know, three inches thick. It's incredible. Did you, at any point, did you worry, I'm sure you do in every trial, no matter what, um, that you were not going to guess the desired verdict? Well, you know, look, whenever you have a jury, there's 12 people who you've pulled in randomly and you never know what their idiosyncrasies are. You never know what they come to court with, with uh, beliefs on. And they're supposed to all be fair and neutral and listen to the evidence and assess it uh, properly. But, you know, jury trials are always a crapshoot. And uh, you, you never, you're never 100% confident of what can happen. Maybe, you know, maybe somebody starts to identify with the defendant or they think the government's heavy-handed or they don't like the prosecutor. He's you know, too belligerent or something, you know, you don't know what what's going on in the minds of these jurors. And so you're always a little nervous, like, we got to convict this guy. We don't want him walking free. For sure. And in fact, the fact they did not convict him on a handful of murders, when which we only had one witness to. So I do think there was like some negotiations going on within the jury of themselves, of the 12. So, you know, he was convicted, I forget, think of 11 of the 19. So, you know, there's a couple that they couldn't agree upon, and the ones that were uh, uh, they couldn't agree upon, for the most part, were based upon the testimony of one man, a, a guy named John Matarano, who who was an extraordinary hitman in his own right. But there was a lot, not a lot to corroborate those murders because the murders were so old; they were from the '60s. And you know, maybe maybe there was some horse trading within the jury uh, for people to say, "Okay, we'll vote guilty on this." But we're not going to vote guilty based upon the word of one one guy for crimes that occurred in the 60s. So I, you just don't know the deliberations. You're not allowed to, like, discuss it with them afterwards. So I guess that's a long way of saying we were confident, but, you know, you're never 100 percent sure. You're never, never 100 percent. So, but he did. He was found uh, obviously guilty and he got what, two life sentences? Uh, I think two life sentences plus five years. I got an extra five years in case he comes back to life after he's dead. Uh, but the, the, <laughs> the gun, the gun statutes here uh, allow you to do what's um, consecutive time. So let's say I'm a drug dealer and I get 10 years for selling drugs. You can have another five for the guns. Uh, it's on and after. So that's essentially 15. Of course, it's pointless if you get a life sentence, but you never know if the, someone takes an appeal and wins one count. You still got the gun gun sentence because we we apprehend um, a lot of guns as well. So that that was uh, part of the case. Arsenal. So how did he how did he take his fate? How did he react? Uh, he was fairly stoic. I don't think it was a surprise to him that he's going to be convicted. Uh, he didn't, uh, you know, I think he was resigned to the fact he was going to lose. And that's why he tried to focus on the fact uh, of things he that would make him look better, not being an informer. And obviously to save face on the informing, because he knew that when he went to prison, if he had been labelled, which he was an informer, he was going to be in danger. And despite the fact that he was 81 years of age, his own life was obviously precious to him. Now, he did go to prison. He was moved around a bit. He didn't make very many friends. And he eventually wound up in a prison in Virginia where at 89 years of age, he was savagely beaten to death. Yeah, being an informant in the federal prison system is not a popular uh, role to, to be in. Uh, and 
like you said, at the end, he was transferred to a uh, very serious prison in West Virginia. And for whatever reasons, it was not properly vetted because there were a lot of guys in there from Boston. So if you stick him in South Dakota and there's no one from Boston, the prison system, you know, it's not as, uh, <laughs> it's not as likely someone's going to try to take a shot at you. But if you stick him in a prison in West Virginia with a lot of Boston guys doing life who have nothing to lose uh, and, you know, everything to gain in terms of um, prison reputation by killing the biggest informant uh, from Boston, you know, it's a dangerous situation. So I think it was a bureaucratic screw up, really, that they they allowed him to be sent to this facility. And then, you know, he was beaten to death uh, by uh, inmates. Suspected to be mafiosa and he was horrifically beaten and I think tortured, possibly. Certainly he had his eyes gouged out and his tongue removed. Is that? You know, I don't know all the details of that, but uh, it, it wasn't a good way to go. Uh, he was beat to death uh, by a couple Boston-based gangsters. And that was only in 2018. That wasn't uh, very long ago. Um, I read somewhere that he had um, at one point said to a fellow inmate that he hoped when it was his time that he would go quick because he always took people out quick. Yes. Yeah. I, I don't think he got his wish. I think he uh, it was a savage way to die. And you know, it's not a lot of people feeling bad about it. I mean, you know, obviously you, want your, you want, don't want your prison systems to be a, a zoo where things are uncontrollable. But, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a, you live by the sword, and what you die about by the Catherine, sword. His, his girlfriend, she's only recently released from prison. She served eight years. What, what's she doing now? Uh, you know, it's my understanding she's living quietly uh, on the South Shore of Boston somewhere. Mm. And Bulger himself is buried in a, a cemetery in Boston. Is there any suggestion that there's a bit of a, you know, anyone going to visit the grave or is there anything macabre happening around the grave? No, it's not. It's not like it's become like a celebrity site or anything like that. I think in Boston, his reputation remains in tatters. He's not seen as any sort of uh, uh, romantic figure or anything like that. Uh, you know, he, it's pretty, pretty much people have a negative opinion of him. And I don't think uh, back here anyway, at least at this point in time, despite all the hoopla about him, no one's really latched on to him as a good guy or anything like that. And finally, Brian, it was obviously a, a, a very good job you did in the courtroom and you did get to, you know, reinforce that position he had as an informer and, and, and tell the world really how that gave him the ability to, to continue in his life of crime and murder. Um, what do you believe is his legacy? Is there still lessons to be learned there from law enforcement? And, you know, is, is his... Is, is is all that that came out in the trial still something that that across the world uh, law enforcement authorities should should take heed of? Yeah, I, I think, look, one of the main takeaways uh, for me and I think should be for others in, in law enforcement is that you, it's, it's not a problem to use informants uh, for certain things, but you always have to be careful that you don't get co-opted by them or that you become so fond of them uh, that you leave them alone, or that because they're important to your career, uh, you look the other way when when you should be taking you know taking uh, appropriate measures. And here, you know, Bulger may have been useful early on as an informant, but at a certain stage, he should have been shut down, prosecuted, and thrown in jail where he belonged, so that other people wouldn't be murdered. And because they didn't do that, 
A lot of people lost their lives and a lot of mayhem occurred in the city of Boston for many years that shouldn't have happened. Brian Kelly, thank you very much. Nice to speak with you. From sundayworld.com, this is Crime World, produced by Ian Mullaney. Available online and on all podcast platforms. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. And if you want to get in touch, check out our Facebook page, Crime World with Nicola Talent.